Chapel, Mason City. You can keep it if you'd like. We are in the midst of studying Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Actually, not in the midst. We're at the end of uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Written to a church in Ephesus, its aim is to build up the church. This is for Christians to be hearing the word, putting this into practice in their lives, to build up the church. And he's been uh, writing about all kinds of different topics. First of all, who you are in Christ, chapters 1 through 3, and then what it means to walk worthy of the calling that's upon your life. That starts in chapter 4. He says, walk worthy of this calling that is on your life as a Christian. And then he gets into this subject on spiritual armor spiritual warfare. As he concludes the letter, it's fitting because he gives all these instructions and then he says, now you have to understand that there's an enemy that's going to try to disrupt your life. And he's going to do it through all kinds of dirty tricks continuously. If you seek to live a life that pleases Jesus Christ, you are an object of the enemy's attack. And so he ends the letter uh, giving some very practical instruction, discussing the armor of God, he calls it. Now, Paul was chained to a soldier, and so he's looking at this soldier, you know, 24-7, and he notices like a metaphor between the way the Roman soldier is clothed, and he says, you know, God has kind of clothed us with armor in these same ways, and he looks at the different parts of the Roman soldier's armor, and he sees a metaphor between these different parts. So far, we've talked about uh, the belt of truth, which is, you know, you need to put on the knowledge of the Bible. You need to know the Bible as a Christian. The belt is like the foundation of the whole thing. Um, it holds the robe up so the person can be mobile and effective. You have to know the Bible as a Christian uh, or else uh, you'll get duped by the enemy. And uh, we see that more and more uh, in the church today. Uh, maybe not necessarily this church as much. I don't know, maybe so. But it's a thing in America to, you know, study the Bible less and, uh, you know, it, it, they say the church in America, and I'm not trying to be negative or anything, but they say the church in America is an inch deep and a mile wide. And that's because the, the lack of the Bible knowledge, the knowledge of doctrine, people just don't know doctrine like they used to, which makes them completely susceptible to the attacks of the enemy. If you don't know the Word of God, when something comes along and challenges the Word of God, you can't tell whether it's true or false, and you get led astray. He also talked about the breastplate of righteousness, covering all of your heart and your vital organs with the fact that God has given you His righteousness, that through your faith in Christ, He sees you as righteous. And I'm not going to go through all of them here again. If you'd like to listen to the last uh, couple weeks, uh, I would invite you to do so. This time we're going to take uh, three more. And essentially what we're getting out of this whole study is God has provided ways for us to stand against the strategies of the devil, but it is our responsibility to take these things up. And then, con you know, conversely, you know, or if we don't, then um, we're not going to be able to stand firm against the attacks of the devil. Starting at verse 14 of Ephesians 6, he says, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Then he goes on to talk about praying um, and how that is uh, crucial in spiritual warfare, and we'll tackle that next week, Lord willing. So the outline's pretty simple today. It's just we're looking at the shield of faith, 
the helmet of salvation and then the sword of the Spirit. So verse 16, he says, Above all, taking the shield of faith. The Romans had two types of shields. They had the uh, round saucer-looking shield that would clamp to the arm, it would strap to the arm, and, and they would use that um, when they were going into the, you know, different types of combat. And they had another type of shield that was larger, and it was about the size of like a small door. And so what they could do is crouch behind it, and it would cover the whole body of the soldier. And on the sides of this shield, they would link together with others. And you've seen the Romans, you know, all, what do they call it? A phalanx, you know, I can't pronounce that correctly, but you know what I'm talking about if you know a little bit about uh, Roman history, where they just make a, almost an impenetrable line of soldiers with their shields connected together, crouching behind it. That's the sort of shield that he is talking about here when he says the shield of faith. He's talking about the larger one that you can get completely behind this. Now, the fiery darts... Notice it says that there in your Bible. It says to extinguish these fiery darts. Now, this was a terrible form of attack, right? So essentially the darts, the arrows, had metal tips, but then they were surrounded by like a cotton swab, really thick, right? And it was dipped in fuel or pitch or some sort of flammable liquid. And so what they would do is they would shoot tons of these at the Roman soldiers, and as they would... Uh, go through the air, you know, that the flames would get more and more intense. You'd see this thing coming at you. And when it would hit your body, the liquid would just splatter all over your face and your eyes and everything else. And it would just be a matter of, you know, minutes before the person burned to death. Uh, it was a terrible form of, of attack. So the shields were covered with animal hide, which had been soaked in water. So the idea was when the dart hit the shield that the wet animal hide would extinguish, you know, at least some of the dart. And so Paul sees in that shield of faith, he sees some more armor that needs to be taken up. One thing I would like you to notice is in this section, he's saying, take the shield. Notice that? Taking the shield. And then he says, take the helmet of salvation. And notice he says, uh, uh, and the word of uh, you know, the sword of the spirit. So you see the, the words have changed. Last week it was having put these things on, right? Having shod your feet, having having put on the belt of truth. There's a difference because those are things you wear all the time. These are things you take up in the battle, right? So there's a big difference in those two things. You're to be clothed in those other things all the time. These are the things as the Christian you need to know how to be able to use when you're being attacked by the devil. Now, I, I just want to point out really quick that the details matter in Scripture. And when we look at the Scripture, we should be observing carefully and noticing differences like that because it, it makes a big difference. A lot of Christians will come to a pastor and say, what am I supposed to be doing? You say, well, you look in your Bible and look for the imperatives. That's what God is telling you to do, the imperatives in the New Testament. Right? So it's very important to look at these words and to understand um, what the Holy Spirit is saying through these authors. So the shield of faith, here's a definition, you know, Paul's seeing this metaphor. Here's a definition that I'll give you. The Christian shield of faith is the protection that comes from really trusting God. 
You could paraphrase this verse like this. Above all, take up the shield of trusting God. The shield of faith. Now, it's very important to define faith correctly. Now, let's do that for a second, okay? Some people talk about faith as if it is a force, kind of like the force in Star Wars, right? Luke, use the force. And so, like, it's something you've got to, like, practice and get good at, and it's kind of like a force. And once you've, like, figured out how to wield it around, then you can sort of make things happen with it. And there are those teachers that would teach that faith is a force, that once I really get up enough faith, now I can start manifesting things into reality like health and wealth and prosperity and all these different things. And I don't know if you've ever heard that, you know, definition of faith before, but if you've ever watched any Christian television late at night, I mean, I'm sure you've run into that, like that, you know, Peter Popov, right? Like the guy's selling miracle spring water and going around and throwing people's crutches and stuff and, and all that stuff. And Kenneth Copeland and, and fellas like that, they teach that faith Faith is a force that can be used to manifest things into reality, which that is not a biblical definition of faith. Faith, biblically speaking, is trusting God. That's really all it is. It's very simple. It's trusting God, who He is, what He says, what He will do, what He has done. It's just trusting God. Here's a quote from A.W. Tozer that I found interesting. He says, remember that faith is not a noble quality found in only superior men, It is not a virtue attainable by a limited few. It is not the ability to persuade ourselves that black is white or that something we desire will come to pass if we only wish hard enough. Faith is simply bringing our minds into accord with the truth. Well said. He says, goes on, it's adjusting our expectations to the promises of God in complete assurance that, God, that the God of the whole earth cannot lie. So it's changing our expectations, bringing ourselves into the alignment with the truth of God, trusting the God of the earth that he cannot lie. It's simply trusting God. Kind of an illustration is, uh, you know, believing a 747 is an airplane, that's one thing, you know, you can look at it and say that's an airplane, but sitting on it, Buckling in and letting it take me to a destination, that demonstrates faith, right? There's a difference between that's, that's an airplane, but I'm putting faith in the whole thing if I get into it and sit down on it and submit to it. And, you know, hope, hopefully the pilot's, you know, <laughs> he's like, this is my first flight. I'm like, oh, no, just kidding. But you see, in that illustration, it doesn't even matter how much faith I really have, does it? Right? I can get in the airplane and say, I don't know, I've only got a little bit of faith that I'm going to make it to L.A., you know, but if the airplane's decent shape and the pilot knows what he's doing, I'm going to get there regardless of whether I have a mustard seed size of faith or, or a ton of faith, right? It doesn't really matter. The amount isn't the issue. Faith is not a force. Faith is simply trusting. That's, what, that's all that it means. So the shield of faith in the biblical sense is putting on this shield, which is the protection that comes simply by trusting God. The shield of trusting God. So if you're taking notes, I would get that down. It's the shield of trusting God. And he goes on to say, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked ones. So faith pictured as the large Roman shield. The fiery darts picture the incessant attacks of the devil and his demons with which they seek to destroy us through our unbelief. Very important. 
Fiery darts are thoughts that the enemy shoots right into our minds. These thoughts pierce us and they spread like fire, like a fiery dart. This attack of the enemy, I think most would agree, is by far the most debilitating. You see, the enemy could attack your body, but, and you could be in a hospital bed, but as long as your mind is in the battle in the right place, while you're going through sickness, even doctors show this on a purely humanistic level, that if a person is going through sickness and their spiritual mind is solid during that whole process, chances are they're going to heal. That's why I say this is very debilitating. If the, if the enemy can get thoughts into your mind that start spreading through how you think and start shaping how you act and getting you to react, it's a debilitating attack. These are the sort of thoughts that are like temptation, uh, doubt, wrath, lust, despair, violence, revenge, insecurities, anxieties, imaginations, fears, lies. These thoughts lead you to doubt the goodness of God. Oh boy, he must not be that good if he let me get into this situation. Oh, look out. That's going to spread. <laughs> Can't believe that I'm suffering as I am. He must not be good. Look out. That's going to eventually take over how you live your whole life right there. Now, these thoughts lead you to believe that giving into temptation will give you fulfillment. Ever had those? You're like really tempted by some sort of sin and you keep getting these thoughts of like, you know, it is just, just once. It's just, just once. Nobody's going to know. It doesn't matter. You know, I mean, does the Bible really say that anyway? Uh, you know what I mean? And you go through this whole process because the enemy is hitting you over and over again. And he gives you these thoughts that if you give into this temptation, that that's going to bring what you're looking for. These are just examples. These thoughts lead you to doubt the power of God. Well, yeah, I know Genesis 1-1 says in the beginning God created the heavens and you know, the earth and everything in them, but I'm not really sure if he can come through for me. <laughs> It's easy to think like that, though, when you're hurt and when you're, you know, the enemy's shooting darts at you. These thoughts lead you to think that God will not come through on his promises. These are attacks of the enemy. These are fiery darts of the enemy. The enemy literally studies you and he waits for a time of unbelief and he shoots a dart with precision into your heart. The torment of this thought spreads through you. He is a master at this. Hey, creepy, right? Sunday morning, here you are. But this is what the Bible teaches. The enemy sits and he lurks and he watches and he's patient. And he knows he waits for that time of where you can find that hole in your armor, catch you with your shield down when you're living in unbelief. Now he says you'll be able to quench this. Paul says there is protection available, which is faith. When you choose to exercise your faith in God, in his character, in his word, the darts of the enemy are extinguished. So the shield of faith is protection that comes from trusting God, who he is, what he's like, and what his word says. 
as you choose to trust him daily and live in trust, your shield is up. When you walk in unbelief, your shield is down. When the shield is down, you're vulnerable to the darts of the enemy. When your shield is up, you're not. When you're walking with the shield, trusting God, the thoughts that the enemy bombs you with, they simply don't stick and they don't spread. Now, some of you know exactly what it's like to be knocked down with your face in the dirt with your back full of darts. The enemy caught you in your unbelief and darts made it through. What do you do? You make a deliberate choice to start trusting God right now. Faith is sort of like a toggle switch that just puts the shield up. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to trust Him. I'm going to take my eyes off of myself and I'm going to put them on Jesus. And I'm going to believe. I'm going to choose to believe who He is, what He says, what He's promised. Use the shield. How do you use the shield? Well, like I just said, it's trusting. But there's something that comes before being able to trust God. And I'm going to give you three things to think about here. First of all, you need to remind yourself of God's faithfulness. Some people are very forgetful when it comes to like, the good things that God does. You can remember all the bad things that happen in your life. You rehearse those things over and over and over and over again. All the things that you failed in, all the things that are bad that have happened to you. Some people just nurse and rehearse that stuff constantly. But for some reason, it's hard to remember all the good things that God has done. All the things that he has delivered you from, all the food that he's provided you with, all the life that he's given you. And so it could be helpful to write down somewhere like the goodness of God, the good things that he's done in your life, his faithfulness. The guy sings the song, Great is Thy Faithfulness, because he wants to remind himself of God's faithfulness rather than nurse all the bad things constantly in his mind that happened to him. Another thing you need to do if you're going to be able to take the shield of faith up, and I think we almost say this every week, but I think it's pretty important, is you've got to know the scriptures, right? He has given us his word so we can become familiar with him, with his truth, with his character, his faithfulness, his love, and his wisdom. Now, many people today base their lives on feelings rather than truth. You'll ask people, you'll say, how's everything going? Say, I don't feel like it's going that well. Well, I don't feel like this and I don't feel like that. And you say, well, do you just base your life on your feelings? Because if you base your life on your feelings, you're very easy prey for the enemy. All he has to do is just attack your mind, make you feel insecure, shoot this at you, get you puffed up in pride. You're in pride one week, you're down in the dumps the next week, you're blown around by feelings. Say, oh, I'm just a real sensitive person, I'm a feelings-based person. Well, I'll tell you what, you're Satan bait. You have to learn to stand on truth, but you have to know truth to stand on truth. You have to become keen to saying, am I basing life on the way that I feel? Am I being blown around by everything that I hear? Am I being controlled by what I think people think about me? Or am I standing on truth? I have to know the Word of God to be able to stand on the Word of God. You have to know scriptures. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. You get in the Word, He rewards you. You got to know that. When you diligently seek Him in His Word, you'll discover a God of unshakable faithfulness to His people. If you want some homework, read the whole chapter of Hebrews 11. It's referred to sometimes as the hall of faith, all these different people, and how God was faithful to them. Even a guy that got sawn in two, you know, God was faithful to him. Here's the last thing where we talk about putting the shield of faith up. First of all, I mean, you, you have to remember 
God's faithfulness. Second, you need to know the scriptures. And the third is, I mean, you've just got to know God personally. You know, how can you tell if a person is trustworthy? Like, you have to know them. You know, you have to, you have to observe them. You have to know what they do and how they operate. You have to know them personally. Choosing to trust God in difficulties, I, I want you to hear this, okay? Tr- trusting God in difficulties, choosing to trust Him in difficulties is how you grow to know Him so much more. You know, in my own life, I got to testify that the times that I have been freaking out in life, anybody ever freaked out in life? I, no, none of you. The times that I've been freaking out in life where there was nothing else to do, and I get to that point where I'm like, well, I guess I better trust God because I don't have anything else to do, you know? And like it's a last resort or something. How foolish, right? But the, I have to admit, there's many times in my life where I've been freaking out and there was nothing left to do except for trust God. I couldn't make anything happen in my own strength. All I could do was trust Him. Those are the times where I learned how faithful He is and how good He is when he's allowed me to flop around in my own strength, uh, you know, and wrestle and, and to the point where I say, yeah, I just got to trust God, you know. And when you trust him like that, you, next time you come into a trial and you say, you know what, last time when I was in a bad situation like this, I, you know, the Lord came through and I, I was a lot stronger spiritually, you know. I became more dependent upon him, which is the strongest thing that anybody could do is learn how dependent they are upon him, Right. And so when you get into a trial, that's why James says, count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you get into a season of trials, knowing what it's going to produce in your life. I'm not a masochist. Oh, bring on the trials, Lord. (laughs) But I do know that when I come into them, even though they're terrifying sometimes, but as I trust him through them, I'm going to grow closer to him. I'm going to see his mighty hand again come upon my life. So those are a few things you can do to use that shield of faith. Now, since he provides this shield of faith to stand against the attacks of the enemies, uh, the enemy, we must take it up by trusting him. Next, we move to the helmet of salvation. As a believer, I look forward to the day when I will be delivered from this body of death. Anybody else? The evil thoughts, the corruption, the pains, mentally, physically, all the sinfulness of sin, one day this will all be behind us. 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. I don't know what the future holds, but I know that sometimes coming, when I'm going to see Jesus face to face, and I'm going to be like him. Oh, my goodness. What a thought. This is the helmet of salvation right here. The helmet of salvation. Knowing that I have a complete salvation that's coming. I'm going to be delivered from this body of death, and I'm going to be like him one day. Back when I was in Cali, right when I first got into running, I used to have this buddy that I'd go running with, Andrew, Andrew Foy. And uh, he was like, Man, 19. I met him in the music scene. This dude's like 19, and I was in my late 20s. And he's like, let's go running. And I'm like, uh, well, I've been not running for like the last, you know, however long. And he'd go out, and he's just like, ding, ding, ding. And I'm like, dude, <coughs> you know, jeez. Uh, but he'd say, oh, here's something that'll make it easier. Just look way off in the distance and pick a spot and just focus on that. 
And um, I was so out of shape, that didn't make any difference to me. You know what I mean? I was just <laughs> but, you know, here I am 15 years later, I'm still running, okay? And it does make a difference. I didn't realize it at the time, but it really does having something to focus on uh, that you're, you're not looking down at your feet going, oh, when is this going to be over? You're, you're looking at some point in the distance. Uh, when my runs are really hard, uh, when it's really hot outside, I think about being at home, uh, drinking, uh, you know, lemon soda water, and <laughs> sitting in front of the fan in the air conditioner, and, uh, you know, and that's a nice pleasant thought that I'll put in my mind, and then I don't notice, you know, the fact that I've got like three miles left and I feel like death, you know, and, uh, you know, I'll get home and, and it's over before you know it, but you, and you discipline your mind to keep it like on, you know, something that's coming, right, and that's the idea of the helmet of salvation, it's, it's the fact that I'm not going to get discouraged because I don't think this is all that's here. People get incredibly discouraged when they live for earthly, worldly things. When you think that the emptiness in your soul can be filled with something temporal, you get discouraged. But when you keep your eyes on Jesus and the fact that one day you're going to see Him and be like Him, you're energized. You say, you know, I can, I can endure being a good soldier of Christ now when I think about what's coming then. Looking at him face to face and having him look at you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we live for as Christians. We live to hear those words. Do you know what the Bema Seat of Christ is? There's some homework for you also. If you don't know what the Bema Seat of Christ is, look that up this week. Go to gotquestions.org. It's a good, uh, good, sound, conservative source. The Bema Seat of Christ, Paul talks about it. He refers to it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. When Christ, when, when the Christian stands before Christ at the judgment seat, it's not the great white throne judgment. There's a difference between the Bema Seat judgment and the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment is something that a Christian will never stand before. The Bema seat is when Christ looks at your life and he rewards you for all that was done in his name. Now, I don't know what you live for. I don't know what goes through your mind when you're trying to wake up on Monday morning and get out of your bed and get yourself to your job or your school. Or I don't know what you live for. I will guarantee you this, if you're living for something temporal, even if it's really good, you're empty. You might cover it well, but you're empty if you're living for something temporal. I guarantee it. You might cover it well, but there's an emptiness. But when you wake up Monday morning and you think, you know, this is not it. I'm going to see him face to face one day, soon and very soon. You know, your perspective starts to change. That's putting on the helmet of salvation. Salvation comes in two, there's at least two different aspects of it to think about too. There's the already and the not yet. Salvation in the already. Though Satan shall buffet and come across, you know, come across your path and say, oh, you're, you're this, you're that, you're a sinner, you're that. No, you know what? I'm saved. Salvation, Jesus Christ and what he did at the cross. I've been set free from the power of darkness that no longer has dominion over my life, Romans 6. That's the already. I've lived in this daily experience. You know, in Romans chapter 8, verses uh, 29 and 30, 
it talks about how God predestined us according to his foreknowledge and those that he foreknew, he called and those who he called, he justified and those who he justified, he glorified, right? He sees your glorification. He says glorified, past tense. God sees it as a done deal. So there's the already and the not yet. You know what it means to be glorified? It means to be delivered from this body of death. It means that corruption will put on the incorruptible. Paul talks about it. In the twinkling of an eye, that we, he says, I'll tell you a mystery, that we shall be changed. First John says in that day that we'll be like him because we'll see him, we'll be like him. Romans 8, 29 through 30 says, he, those who he has glorified, he sees that as a done deal. So you live in this reality. I've been delivered from the domain of darkness. Sin shall no longer have dominion over me. I am more than a conqueror who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Death, life, height, depth, anything, right? And you live in this daily reality. But then when you get tempted to get discouraged, it's, ah, this isn't all that's it. Oh, my job's not as fulfilling as I thought it was going to be. I, you know what? That's okay. It doesn't have to be all that fulfilling because that's not it, <laughs> you know? Well, I, you know, I expected my marriage to be the most ultimate thing ever in my life, my spouse, my partner. Well, I mean, that's, that's a taste of heaven on earth, but that's not it. Oh, my hobbies, you know, they were so fun at first, but I just don't get the same enjoyment out of it anymore. Oh, well, good. That's not it. <laughs> like C.S. Lewis says, he goes, if your heart is still longing for something, you can't get it satisfied, it means that you're made for something else beyond this. And that's the helmet of salvation is living in this reality day by day. Life is tough. And if we only have this life and its issues to focus on, we'll not do so well. But if we have the hope of what is yet to come, that which is off in the distance, we're charged with energy to finish the race well. When you see a picture of the Roman soldier with his helmet with the leather and the metal studs and the different plumes to identify the regiment that he belongs to, you'll think of this, the hope the optimism, the protection from discouragement that you have wearing the helmet of salvation. How do you apply it? I've alluded to it. You just, you need to preach this to yourself. You need to understand the gospel. You need to understand what the Bible says about salvation. That passage in Romans, I'm telling you, Romans chapter 8, verses 29 through 30. If you're a note taker, jot that down. That's a good thing to think about. That is salvation from God's perspective. In his intelligence, in his love, in his wisdom, he called you based on his foreknowledge. He justifies you and he has glorified you. It's a done deal all in his eyes. From your perspective, you do what Jesus says and you repent and believe and receive the gospel. But you know, how, you know what salvation is. You, you see it as God sees it. You understand that nothing can pluck you out of his hand in the here and now and that heaven is your home. Since he provides the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation to stand against the attacks of the enemy, we should, we must take them up. Finally, let's cut to the sword of the Spirit. He says, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, a little background here. Romans had two swords, the soldiers. One's called the broad sword, which the blade was between three and four feet long. The broad sword. 
took two hands to wield that thing. And uh, archaeologists have literally found skulls that are just cut straight in half from the broadsword, right? So that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about this other kind of sword. I can't really pronounce the name. Makaria? I don't know. Makaria? Forgive me. Uh, It's probably not that all important to you, but it's a different sword. Uh, in the Greek here that he uses, and that helps us to find the definition. When we go to our Bible dictionary, we look at the word Paul uses, and we see that this is actually a shorter sword, six to 18 18 inches long, had a uh, case that would go in the Roman soldier's belt, and he would take this out for hand-to-hand combat. It was known for being, you know, really precise. They could get and just precision deal with the enemy uh, with this thing. What's the Christian sword? The Christian sword he's talking about, he says right there, which is the Word of God. The Bible is sufficient for everything that we will face in life as Christians. It is the tool that is needed. Experience is good as a Christian. Singing is good as a Christian. Attending church is good. All of these things, but the Bible is the sword of the Spirit. The Bible is the offensive taking out the enemy weapon. It's defensive and offensive. This is the tool that you need for the Christian life. Now, where he says the Christian sword is the word of God, this is different than the belt of knowledge. Okay, remember we talked about the belt of knowledge and we said that represents the truth of the Bible. That's a different word. In the, in the Greek, where it says the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, this is a different word translated for word of God. This is the word rhema. The word translated word of God is in the belt of truth. That's a general word for the word of God. Now, rhema, what rhema means is it is a specific word or truth of God for a specific situation. Do you see the difference? Somebody could know the Word of God in totality really well, but not be very well versed in what truth goes to what situation. I'm going through this particular thing in my life. I don't know what's going on. Can you show me a Bible verse that applies to this situation? Sure. That's the rhema word. It's applies to, it's the Word of God that applies to a specific situation. It's not the Word in general, like the belt of truth. This specific word of God, truth of God, is applied to specific temptations and to trials that you and I are going through at any given time. Many times when a person is going through a crisis, they'll call me and say, can you show me some Bible verses that go through this situation? And and that's exactly what they're asking for. I need the rhema. I need the word of God for what's going on in my life right now. So the sword's not only a defensive weapon, it's offensive as well. You and I are to take specific truths of the word and apply them to lies, temptations, and assaults of the enemy. We're to be skillful with this weapon. Now, by the way, uh, this isn't a plug for Calvary Chapel, okay? I hope you go to wherever God has you, you know, as a church. But I do want to tell you, this is why it's so important to go to a church that teaches the Bible, because the churches that don't teach the Bible, people don't ever get equipped in how to use the rhema word in their life. They don't know how to apply the word of God to the situations in their life, and they don't know how to help others. 
And so, and that's God's intention, that you would become skillful in the Word so you can help other people in the Word. So they can call you and say, what verse applies to this thing in my life? And you can, you can give them the Word and they can say, oh man, uh, that, you know, you're right. <laughs> that is the truth. It's, it's so important to go to a church that teaches uh, the Bible verse by verse in context, right? People that hop all around the Bible never become skillful in the Word of God. They just don't know the context. They don't know why the author is writing what they're writing. They don't know how it applies to a situation. You know, I'm not trying to be down on anybody else. I'm just saying it takes the whole Bible to make a whole Christian, right? This is also precisely why so many people get sucked into false teachings and ideas. They run into some false teacher online that starts saying something and it sounds appealing to them, uh, but they could be misquoting the text. Uh, you know, with the intention of deceiving people, and uh, many people can't tell the difference because they're not skilled with the sword of the Spirit. Now, how do you use this sword of the Spirit? If you would, please turn to Matthew chapter 4 in your Bible. Matthew chapter 4. I'm going to show you how Jesus used the sword of the Spirit because I think we can learn from him. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterward, he was hungry. Think so, Matthew? Now when the tempter, that's referring to Satan, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you're the Son of God, Command that these stones should become bread. If would refer to like since. It's better translated since there. Since you are the Son of God. Satan didn't doubt that he was the Son of God. He said, since you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He's saying, since you're the Son of God, use your power wrongfully to violate the plan of God. Jesus replies with Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, which says, So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. The enemy tempts Jesus, and Jesus comes back with Scripture. He uses the sword of the Spirit, the rhema word. He knows exactly how the Old Testament applies to that situation that he's going through right there, and he uses it. Guess what happens next? Verse 5. Then the devil took him up on, uh, into the holy city, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple. So the devil takes Jesus up onto this roof with a covered area at the southeast corner of the temple area. The wall dropped from high down to the temple mount. It's probably about 450 feet down. And he takes him up there. And verse 6, he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, He shall give His angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Now Satan was saying in essence, Why don't you uh, just do what the people are expecting and make some marvelous display? You're the Messiah, right? After all, the Scripture says, His angels will protect you and you won't even hurt your feet your foot as you come down. You notice his tactic there? He's appealing to Jesus' pride. 
Everybody will see this. This is a way, make the grand entrance. You're the Messiah. Do it. And he quotes, this, do you notice what Satan does there? Look, do you know something interesting about Satan's tactic? What Satan says in verse 6, is it capitalized in your Bible? Why is it capitalized? Why is that? Because it's Scripture. That's interesting that Satan is quoting Scripture to Jesus, right? But do you notice something about the way that Satan quotes Scripture? Let me, let me read the verses that Satan sort of quotes. Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12 says this, For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You notice the difference? Let me read it again. Look, at, look in Matthew chapter uh, 4, verse 6, as I'm reading this. It says, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Notice the difference? Satan leaves out something crucial. He leaves out this crucial part to keep you in all your ways. Satan quotes this scripture, but he utterly twists its meaning using a passage about trusting God in a flawed attempt to justify testing God. He left out this important phrase in all your ways. Now, according to the psalmist, a person is protected only when he is following the Lord's will. For Jesus to cast himself down from the pinnacle of the temple in some dramatic display to accommodate himself to the people's thinking would not have been God's will. So Satan is very clever, wasn't he? He left out just a few words in a Bible verse. He can do that same thing with you. When Satan wants you to fall, he can come and he can bring Bible verses to your mind and he can just cleverly twist them around to where nobody would even really know the difference unless they knew the scriptures. Look how Jesus responds to him. Verse 7, Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You should not tempt the Lord your God. He quotes Deuteronomy 6.16, which says, You shall not tempt the Lord your God uh, as you tempted him in Massa. He quotes this obscure, it's, well, it's not that obscure, but he quotes this Old Testament passage. Old Testament is becoming more and more obscure to Christians today, which is tragic. But Jesus pulls out the Old Testament. <laughs> Look, we're going to finish this up here, I promise. Again, verse 8, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said, all these things I'll give to you if you fall down and worship me. Now, this is incredibly deceptive. Satan says essentially to Jesus, look, you can have all the kingdoms of the world and everybody will bow down and worship you. I'll give them to you. Satan can do that, right? Because he's the God of this age. And so he's making Jesus a legitimate offer. He's saying, I can give you everything if you'll just worship me. And so you see what, this is so crafty. He's saying, Jesus, you can have essentially what the outcome is that you're going for. I mean, you're, you're eventually going to be ruler of the whole world, right? He says, but here you can have it without going to the cross, without suffering. It's pretty appealing. Why don't, here, just, just get the outcome, but you don't have to go through the cross. By the way, he gives us that same temptation all the time. He says, look, uh, you want to be a solid Christian? That's cool. Let me offer you a way that doesn't involve any suffering or death to self. Let, let me do that. Let me, let me convince you that you're a Christian. Even though you haven't picked up your cross, denied yourself, and followed Christ. But let me, let me convince you that you are. So when you get to the end of your life and the Lord says, hey, depart from me, I never knew you, you'll figure, I've been sleepwalking my whole life in a coma as a Christian because the enemy, he offered me this promise that I'm a Christian without any suffering involved, 
without any cross. Very deceptive. Look at what Jesus says. He goes, hey, uh, Satan, away with you. Verse 10. Uh, For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Look at verse 11. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. I want you to notice there that Jesus used the sword of the Spirit. When the enemy came, Jesus didn't fumble around and go, oh, I think I know this one verse that's back in the Bible somewhere. I don't know. Maybe it's in the book of Hezekiah. I think it's in the book of Hezekiah. Maybe it's in chapter 17 of Mark. It's probably in Ruth 8. I think it's back in Ruth 8. He didn't fumble around and go like, you know, I, you know, I wonder where it's at. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't take out his phone. <laughs> Jesus is like, hold on, I don't have Wi-Fi out here. Uh, I can't uh, get in Blue Letter Bible and, and, and figure out, you know, where this verse is, uh, you know. He was a man of God, and he knew how to use the sword of the Spirit. Vance Havner used to say, the Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. The Bible that is not falling apart usually belongs to someone who is. Let me ask you a pointed question. Do you think Vance is right? Another quote that goes around says, the book, this book, will keep you from sin and sin will keep you from this book. How true do you think that is? I want to show you one last thing. We'll conclude here. I brought a video. Say, how to use this sword. I, I need to know how to study the Bible. First of all, let me show you one thing. Was there a screen right before this one, Tyler, or is it coming after? Uh, never mind. We'll do the video first. I want to show you something here. This video. You just watch it. Can everybody see that? All right, go ahead and play it, sir. See that machine? I didn't know that's how they got mandarin oranges off the trees in Spain. (laughs) It's a short video. Um, You've already got the idea of the whole thing, so we don't need to labor it. But you've got to figure out some way to get in the Word where you can get the fruit off of it, you know, where you can get the fruit out of it. Your Bible study needs to be fruitful. You know, people that are like, I read through the whole Bible in a year, that's great, but do you understand what you're reading? I'm glad that you're reading it because, you know, hearing it and getting it in your mind, that's good. Memorizing is good. But how much do you actually understand what's being said? You've got to get the fruit. It's got to produce fruit in your life. You've got to get this in your life and start applying it. And so maybe you'll think of that tree when you think of your Bible study. Be at home and your wife comes down in the morning and you're like, like, that's not how it works. It wasn't, you know, thanks for, he's taking it really literally. You've got to learn how to study the Bible. Um, And... We can't get into that today because I would love to, but it's, you know, it's already been some time here. Next screen, if you would. I just want to recommend a resource to you. Howard G. Hendricks, H-E-N-D-R-I-C-K-S. Uh, it's not Jimmy's brother. It's spelled differently. He's got a book called Living by the Book. Um, Howard Hendricks, if you want to jot that name down, if you're looking to learn how to study the Bible. He also has YouTube videos. There's a playlist called Living by the Book, which is 15 videos. They're really short. Um, each one is a different lesson on how to study the scriptures. It's very important to study the scriptures, to know what they say. Um, what did the original author mean to say? What was he saying in context? What do these words mean? Um, the Bible is not meant to be 
subjectively interpreted. It's meant to be objectively interpreted. In other words, what I feel like it means doesn't matter ultimately. What it truly means is what matters. But without some sort of method to get into it and study it, um, we end up coming up with, you've got an opinion, I've got an opinion, you've got an interpretation, I've got one. But that's not how the Bible was written. The Bible was written, you know, every verse has a meaning, not multiple meanings. You have to live by some sort of interpretive method to study and read the Bible. And so I would recommend that resource to you. Um, maybe this is something we'll talk about more in the future. I'm going to conclude here. We're six minutes over. Thank you. Thank you for your patience. The shield of faith, the protection that comes as you live trusting God. I want to invite you to trust God. If you're in a situation right now, it's difficult. Trust the Lord. Take your eyes off yourself. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. And trust him. Make a deliberate effort to trust him. The helmet of salvation, get your eyes on what's coming. You know, if you're discouraged with today, man, put your eyes on the horizon. Look at what's coming. The sword of the spirit defends us from temptation, offensively dismantles the enemy's work as we build our lives on the truth, using the rhema word for the situations in our life. Next week we